0: So is everything on? Oh, that's quick. Okie dokie. Let's see what we have. You've actually been quite kind. We haven't got too many extra questions here, so I'd better (laughs) be fast with the answers. Dear Ajahn, form, experience, perceptions, volitional formations, or will and consciousness. Can it be form, experience, perception, consciousness, will, Volitional formations. Thank you Ajahn for the teaching. I've oh, got consciousness before Will in this one. So form, I'm not quite sure what you mean here, because they've got arrows there, but it doesn't mean that from form makes experiences and experiences make perception or volitional formations, it's not one leading to the other mostly. It's, um, it's just these are five things and of course you have to have consciousness as to have experiences and to have perceptions. Form, you can have form without anybody knowing form. That was one of the interest, there I go again, stories. What is experience and form? How do they interrelate? And we have, this was in, in quantum physics, Schrödinger's cat. Erwin Schrödinger, uh, he was a German by nationality, and he was uh, alive during the Second World War, and after he, uh, the Second World War finished, they were interrogated him because they thought he... He was uh, trying to build an uh, atomic bomb, but actually he was very anti uh, the Nazi party, and he was actually stayed in Germany to stymie it to actually to make sure it didn't happen but anyway, he was one of my heroes because schrodinger also no, yeah schrodinger but also Schrodinger made this wonderful experiment. He never carried it out, it was called a thought experiment. And the thought experiment was putting his cat in a box. And in the box, there was a cyanide capsule. And the cyanide capsule would be broken if a cesium atom decayed. And it's a 50% chance that a cesium atom would decay, because that's a quantum process, the decay of atoms. And he asked the question, he said, before you open the box, is the cat alive or is the cat dead? And the answer is, it's not alive, it's not dead, it's in a third state, which goes totally against all of your reason and logic you've learnt in your life. It makes no sense. And that was the reason he promoted that idea. Because according to the physics, it does make sense. The problem is that much of how we look at life is not um, up to date with our modern research. Good example of this, here we go again, more stories. We have um, time, we have space, the Buddha talks a lot about that. What about space? I always wondered this, if you could travel fast enough and go to the edge of the universe, because all scientists know This universe has only got a certain volume to it. It's not infinite in volume. There was a a great philosopher called Obler, O-B-L-E-R, Obler's Paradox, and he proved very simply that the universe cannot be infinite. If it was, there'd be just too much energy in it, but anyhow, most scientists agree on that. So we all agree that it's not that big. How long since the Big Bang? 13. Sorry? 13.8, Thirteen point 8. 13. eight. well done. 13.8 what? Thousand <laughs> million years. So, it can only expand no faster than the speed of light. So it's it's got a, a limited volume. So I thought, what would happen if you travelled to the end of the universe? What would the end of the universe look like? Would it be this this big wall like I've seen in Singapore, with a sign of this guy being shot, saying, "If you go past this, past this point, you know, you'll be executed." <laughs> 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 or would it be just this huge? Big wall or razor wire, what is at the end of the universe? And you ask any scientist, there is the limited volume, but no end to it. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But then you look at planet Earth. Planet Earth, it's got a limited area. We all know that because, you know. Housing and land gets more and more expensive every year. It's limited area, but it hasn't got any edges to it, because it's curved. And this is exactly what space is like. A limited volume, but curved. If you keep on going in any direction, from here, if you're fast enough, you go that way, that way, that way, and you come back into Jhana growth. After a few million years. Because it's a curved space. So, some time ago, you wondered you know, the problem with time. Where did time begin? Where's the end of time? And where's the end of space? Just change your perception that time can be curved. Just like this Earth, no beginning, no end, but limited. Now I should not have said that because now you're going to think about that tonight when you go to bed. <laughs> but It's one of those solutions which are quite beautiful, but anyway, Schrodinger's cat, it does actually say that before you look, it's in a third state, a probability state. And that is more real than people imagine. It's what drives quantum computers. These are things which actually work. It's part of our life. It's not black, it's not white, it's kind of in between. And That just really bamboozles your mind. And that's why I say these things, because sometimes whenever we come across what looks like contradictory, it's not contradictory, it's real. It's just our experiencing and our understanding, our framework of knowledge is not wide enough to understand it. That's one thing which I got from physics. You look at it one way, it makes no sense. You look at it more thoroughly and it makes total sense. Anyway. I shouldn't keep going on to this, I'm get into big trouble, very late. But anyway, I'm not quite sure what the question here really means, is it form, causes, experiences or perceptions, consciousness causes will, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at here so. I think the person may be thinking in a chronological order. Yeah, no, yeah, one thing, one starts from the other. The first there was form, and then there was experiences, and there was perception, and then will and consciousness. One thing which the Buddha did say, there cannot be the coming and going of consciousnesses without experience, perception, and, and will, volitional formations. They have to be together, it's not chronologically, but simultaneous. Anyway, why is not Kayagata Sati on the physical body expressly mentioned before mindfulness of the breath in the Anapanasati Sutta? One of the reasons why it is, this is not the Anapanasati Sutta that's mentioned, but why it's mentioned by the Buddha is because if you don't have if you don't understand your body, it's very difficult to calm the body down, to let it go, to get to the, the next stages of Anapanasati. I did apologize, but I didn't finish the Anapanasati Sutta. The most interesting parts, you know, come next. After you are being aware of the breath, and that is called an example of Kayagatasati. It fits into the the, that's actually the body, but it fits into the mindfulness, uh, yeah, the first um, focus of mindfulness, kaya nupasana, of the body. And then the next stages, which I mentioned, I'll go over this again tomorrow I have to because it's really important, uh, is vedanusati, where you see the uh, piti sukha, which arises with the breathing, the delight. And the Buddha called that that is a chitta sankara. It comes from the mind, creates these experiences of bliss when you're meditating. It's not a bodily expression. The breath is never beautiful. It's the way you experience it becomes beautiful. That's where the joy and happiness of meditation come from. And so once you know you've done body awareness, you know that is of your physical body, that does mean that you can relax the body and it becomes a good vehicle for doing anapanasati. Does that make sense? Am I getting the question right? Whoever wrote it? Okay. That's a consistent thing, the Buddha says, do the kaya sati first on the body, your physical body. Get that in reasonable good shape and it's easy to do the breath meditation. Ajahn Brahm, what is your favorite food? I never wrote this. (laughs) Do you miss any European food? Fish and chips, vegetarian food, spaghetti without ice cream on top? My favorite food is pure food. And pure food is what is given with a pure heart. You laughed. It's beautiful, yeah. It's actually just not what's in the food, or not what it is, but how it's given. And I always think that's a beautiful expression of, you know, just uh, what is a pure gift. It's just the purity is not in the the food. The purity is actually in the the, uh, intention of the owner, of the donor. That's what makes it pure. And look, many of you, you know, offer food to the monks. Many of you offer uh, tea and condensed milk. Is that bad for my health? Are you kidding me? (laughs) If you've got a pure heart when you're offering, in an amazing way that purifies the food whatever it is. Anyway, the next questions, quick questions. And I, I did mention, when I was in Thailand, okay this is, I think I can mention the stories, not that many here. When I was in Thailand, sometimes when you're eating rice, sticky rice, and all these curries made of things which crawl on the floor, on the ground, that, you know, you had these amazing curries, sometimes ant curries, when you first have an ant curry, you know, you think the ants must have got it in the pot and they didn't notice it. No, once we have to, in North East Thailand, rotten fish curry, that was every day, rotten fish curry. And it was rotten fish, they catch the fish during the rainy season, and they'd put it in jars, because there's nothing else to eat for the rest of the year, and jars to pickle it. And they weren't that good at pickling. And so it just stank, the rotten fish curry. And one day when I was cleaning up around the monastery kitchen, I found a jar of the rotten fish. They usually put a piece of plastic on top of the jar to protect it, but this one, the jar had broken, the seal was busted, and it was obviously the, the flies had been in it, and it was crawling with maggots. So I did what any sensible person would do I went to throw it away. And as I was throwing away, that's when the headman of the village, the most respected, educated, wisest man in the village, came up to say, What are you doing? Look, you know, it's just spoiled. it have got maggots all over it. No, that gives extra protein. <laughs> and that's what we ate the next day. Oh. <laughs> so that was not my favourite food. But nevertheless, they did give it with a very pure heart. They gave us the best of that jar. Have I convinced you? I don't think so. Anyway, come let's get on. Dear Ajahn, are this another you know, one of the worst foods one of them has got on arms round. I've never got this myself, but you know I can imagine what it must be like. He had his sticky rice offered by the villagers, and the next thing they offered to put in his bowl was the head of a bat. Now these, these were very really poor people, and that was they could only eat what they they had. He got a bat said, and a bat said, please excuse me, looks very, very gross and very ugly and very frightening. And so he put it in his bowl. When he got back to the monastery, he opened his bowl to eat it, he just lost all his appetite. So he fasted that day. Bat said. In the same area, sometimes they don't have rotten fish, but they have rotten rat. They catch rats, and they tie it by the tail to a tree, and they let it sort of what what the very refined English lords used to do: let it go game. In other words, let it go off. Some of the (laughs) I never ate that. Thank goodness. But that's the sort of food you know you had to eat, and it's amazing you survived. Now, before I was a monk, I became, a, I was a vegetarian and the idea of having to eat rotten rats, uh, bats said, oh, this is not exaggerating, this is real. And other things which called, the first thing I was told by the other monks was, don't ask what's in the curry, <laughs> you understand why. Anyway, I just, I don't mind telling these stories this time of night because any of you are hungry, you will lose your appetite. Anyway, are the similes of the foam, the bubble, mirage, banana plant, and magician's tricks for the respective five components of existence or they apply to all the five? No, they were just uh, specifically just for the, the one, the foam was for the body. You look into it, there's nothing in it. And the bubble was for um, experience, because real experience, it just comes and goes very quickly, it never lasts that long. Pleasures are like poppies spread, you pluck the flower, the bloom is shed, or like the snowfall in the river, white for a moment and then gone forever. That was Rabbi Burns, a Scottish poet and I didn't do it in a Scottish accent, I tried once to do it in a Scottish accent and the real Scots people, they just really criticised me afterwards. It was a terrible Scots accent. There's <laughs> a nice little part of the poem. So each one of these, the bubble, the mirage perception, I love that one, there's something real there but how do you interpret that, that mirage? And how you interpret it, there's a lot of conditioning goes on how you perceive things. This, this was a weird, this is a young man's perception. When I first went to Thailand as a monk, I was only that 23, a young man. And of course, you know, being a young man, being heterosexual, sometimes you see the Thai girls, you know, in the village on arms round. And the first year I thought, well, this is very easy being a monk, there was no Thai girl, it was beautiful. They were all just really, just kind of ugly. And then, it only took a year when you get used to this and your perceptions change. After one year, the same girl started to look pretty. <laughs> and I just wonder, what's going on? <laughs> all that was happening your perceptions were being changed. And that also happened to me, a much better story, is as a young, I think I was about 14 years of age, in the UK, you know, everybody drinks beer, warm, uh, bitter English beer. And so the peer pressure was, you know, with my friends, you have to go into a pub, even if you're underage, you know, to have a glass of beer. It's like you know, young people going through their rite of passage. And the thing I always remember about that first time I just had a half a pint of beer, I was wondering, what on earth is the big fuss and bother about? This really tastes awful. It wasn't delicious or delightful at all. And I thought, oh, it's very easy not to have to drink beer in my life because I didn't like it. But after six months, my perception changed and I really loved it. And after I thought, why, what's going on, did I get it wrong at first? No, the peer pressure changed my perceptions. I had to like it and so the perceptions changed and it was delicious. (laughs) Anyway, so that, uh, the mirage, the banana plant, of course, they call it plantain in the suttas, but it's like a banana plant. That is especially for sankharas and the will, and a magician's trick was especially for consciousnesses. And I love that because it's not um, exaggerating the importance of consciousnesses, it's, it's just a magician's trick. And I don't know if you've ever seen magicians, you know, real live ones. One of our mo- monks, years ago, you know, he just learned a few magic tricks, you know, because when he was young, he liked to entertain kids with magic tricks, he showed us a couple of them. It's amazing. You know, he just had some piece of paper and he was just folding it this way and that way, and then it disappeared. I thought, wow, that's really neat, how would you do that? He got psychic powers? He said, no, just so stand back a little bit, and we looked in him a distance. What he was doing is folding it and then throwing it that way. And you didn't see him throw it away. Now you're so close, you were looking for something else. It deceived you. So sometimes, once you know how the trick is done by a magician, you can see it every time. When you don't know, that's when you get fooled. Okay, what am I doing? Where'd that go? (laughs) So that's magician. Dear Ajahn, after Ajahn Chan told you the story, did you see the elephant, what happened? It was Ajahn Juan was his name, and he lived in this monastery, Puthok, I think it must have been the centre of a volcano, because it was just like a top hat, sticking out of the ground, really tall. And when people actually made the little... uh, Roadways or pathways to get to the top, and quite a few people died on that. But he was a really interesting monk. So to see the elephant, I went to see the elephant, but by that time the elephant had disappeared and gone somewhere else. But you did see the huts which some monks had built, you know, some time before. They'd all been flattened, like they'd been run over by a uh, not a. Bulldozer by, what was that? Um, sorry? Steamroller. Steamroller. The elephants must have kept jumping on them to, to flatten them like that. So the elephants didn't like anybody building any huts there. But I remember that place, it was called Doisanan. And it was a beautiful place. You know, it had a huge lake waterfalls and caves and underground waterfalls as well, You go in the cave and see these beautiful waterfalls and a large amount of water under the ground. I'm not sure what's happened to it now, but I'm sure it's a resort. It was just too beautiful. And the forest, I remember it was the last piece of virgin rainforest uh, in the northeast of Thailand. And so when you walked into it, there was always some sort of fragrance of something was in, in, in blossom or in flower. So it, was, it was scented, it was cool, and on the ground you could see the elephant and the tiger droppings. There's many of them over there, and, but I never saw them come into the monastery. It was a beautiful place. Uh, okay, yeah. So that's actually when I went there. I was disappointed; the elephant never showed up. Well, I'll tell you one of the other stories—not elephants—but when I was on my Dutanga, that's you know when you go wandering just with everything you have carried on your back, I was staying in another monastery in central Thailand, and I was. Uh, Going from that monastery uh, into Sakonakon, about two days' walk. So I asked the abbot of this monastery, you know, Ajahn Sawat, his name was, is there a cave around halfway, you know, so I can stay the night in a cave? I love caves. And he looked at me and said, Yes, there's a cave halfway, but be careful, because there is a ghost in that cave. And the ghost is, you know, quite aggressive. And many monks have actually gone crazy in that cave. And I thought, yes! (laughs) She said, as long as you have good meditation and meditate, you'll be fine. So I thought, I want to check out a real Thai ghost. And this is one of these holy monks who said there is one there. So I said, I'm going to find out. So it's a long walk, when I got there, sort of, I asked one of the lay people in the village, and I said, oh yeah, that cave is over here, it's a beautiful cave, it had a spring of very cool, cool clean water just outside the cave. And it was a very old cave, I mean old cave, people had used it, monks had used it you know, to sleep in because there was a really old Buddha statue in there. Probably worth a fortune because made so many hundreds of years ago, and an old bed, and I asked the villager about the ghost. He said, "Yeah, it's there," because you go deeper in, and there was a skeleton, a human skeleton deep in the cave. It was getting too dark for me to explore the cave, and the layperson wasn't at all interested in guiding me to where that skeleton was. He'd show me where the cave was. And he said, "I have to go home now." It's getting close to dark. So, I was on my own in this dark cave. This is not a joke, this is a real story. Uh, in the dark cave. And uh, <coughs> the village was about a kilometre away, so there's no way I could call out for help. And I wasn't really scared, because in all I'd heard about ghosts, they can't hurt you. They can scare you, but they can't do anything to you. So I was waiting, sitting there waiting for the ghosts, (coughs) waiting and waiting and waiting. I've been walking all day in the hot sun, so I'm not quite sure what time I got tired and laid down to sleep. But I tried to stay awake as long as possible to wait for the ghost. And the ghost never came. I was a young monk then, I was irritated. Look, I welcome you, ghost, come along now. And the ghost never came. <coughs> but as soon as I lay down, as my head hit the pillow, hadn't fallen asleep yet, I heard something running towards me really fast <coughs> and stopped right in front of where I was uh, resting it was the ghost had come. But I was so irritated, you couldn't see it because you need a flashlight or turn some light on. It came and I said, I've been waiting, you, waiting for you for hours. If this is how you disrespect a monk, get out of here. I was surprised, I was not scared, I was irritated. That's one way of overcoming fear, be irritated. (laughs) And so, the ghost went away. I never saw it. I heard it for sure. I don't know what the ghost thought of me. I thought, these westerners, you can't scare them. Anyway, that was experiencing, not the elephant, but the ghost. I have seen a tiger, tiger really close, maybe about, you know, maybe even closer than you are. The amazing thing is being a monk, when I saw the tiger, big one, and I wasn't scared. I Wasn't scared at all. Can you believe that? Because it was in the zoo. <laughs> Sorry, (laughs) Dear Ajahn Brahm, can you explain a bit more about the concept of letting go? This is one of the words you hear and you have a concept about it and you notice in all spiritual paths it's important. Somebody told me that there was a really popular movie and it was a song called Letting Go. Let it go. Okay, or Let It Be. Okay, but anyway, it was a, a kids show. What's the song? Let it, go. let it go. You see that even kids know that word. <laughs> So we start off like that, but this is what happened to me. Please excuse me for telling personal stories, because when it's a personal story, I can remember it and it's, I can, I know it's true, it's honest. So the first year I was in Thailand, I had a bad toothache. And these forest monasteries were really poor and simple. And as usual, you know, aches, and sicknesses they always seem to get better once the sun goes down when it gets nighttime and it always gets better when you go and see a doctor i don't know how many times as a kid i'd have some sort of fever or sickness and you go and see the doctor and as soon as you went into the doctor's surgery it didn't feel that bad does that happen to you anyway so i actually didn't need to see the doctor I'd just need to go and do his surgery and I felt much better <laughs> But this was a toothache. And as it got later and later into the night, it got more and more painful. And it got to the point, there's no way I could meditate. You go and meditate, watch your breath. You couldn't watch your breath, or you just watch your gums just exploding in agony. There's no way I could go to sleep that night, I thought. And you know, it got to be really, really irritating. I tried walking meditation. But instead of walking, I was running. When you're in pain, you can't do anything slowly. So I decided to try some chanting. This is my first year as a monk and honestly, I didn't really believe in the chanting. But I'll do it anyway, just in case it worked. It didn't work. And worse, because I was in quite severe pain, that I was shouting the chants. And I realized I'd wake everybody up in the forest if I carried on like that. So anyway, to cut the long story short, I was in this position. I just couldn't st- I tried to go to the medical cabinet. I looked in there. there was nothing in it. It had a cross on it. You know, to, I thought the cross meant it was a medical cabinet. I didn't really mean didn't really mean that the cross meant there's nothing in there. But there was no medicine or anything. So I was stuck with my pain. I couldn't stand it much longer and I couldn't get rid of it. I couldn't meditate, I couldn't walk and sometimes in your life you get in these positions. How Ajahn Chah used to say, you can't go forward, you can't go backwards and you can't stand still. That's what it felt like. So what can I do? And I'd always heard, this was almost 50 years ago, I'd always heard, you know, in spirituality, just let it go. And so it's the first time I did let it go. And honestly, I'll never forget that experience. One moment, you were in agony which you couldn't stand any longer. The next moment, you were blissing out. I was standing, not sitting down. It was incredible. The pain left and was, was replaced by this really divine or very sort of refined um, bliss. So I didn't, even though it was about one o'clock in the morning, I didn't really want to go to sleep. But then after enjoying the bliss for like half an hour, I lay down, fell asleep, and I woke up in the morning with a toothache. But only very mild. My kind, I kind—I was really thankful, you know. Just you realize when you really have to, you can let go, and you're not afraid of pain anymore. However heavy the pain is, when it gets really intolerable, let it go, and it vanishes. Weird, but absolutely true. I did arrange an appointment for the dentist in the next week or two and they filled up the the cavity or gave me antibiotics so the swelling would go down. But it was amazing just how that worked. Anybody, that's how I learned letting go, what works. And The other part of letting go, which is also important, you've got a big monastery over the road And I'm supposed to be the abbot, supposed to be. But I always say that really, I'm a part-time abbot. When I walk into the monastery, then I'm an abbot. When I'm over here, I'm a teacher. When I'm in my room, I'm tired. (laughs) And I got that from this little anecdote, the story You know, it's not just looking after a monastery and building it up. You also went to Nolamara Center on the weekend and taught a lot of people over there. And then you go to other countries and help somewhere else. And sometimes I'm always doing something, always working. And so one day someone came to Bodhinyana Monastery and they said, This is such a beautiful monastery. Have you been over there? Is it beautiful? Is it peaceful? Not if you're the boss. It's my job to see all the the things which the monks aren't doing. To actually to see all the gutters which need cleaning, to see all the faults in the electricity which need fixing up. This is, that's my workplace. So I remember once being with this gentleman, he said, it's a beautiful monastery, and I said, can't you see all the stuff which needs to be done and fixed? It's such a heavy workload. And then I realised afterwards, this was my mistake. I was not looking at my lifestyle with any wisdom. So from that time on, I made a resolution every Monday morning, because I usually come back from the Nolamara Centre on a Sunday night, every Monday morning I would have a morning off. I would not be the abbot. So if somebody came and said, we want to speak to Ajahn Brahm, and he's not here today. And I'd say that. <laughs> One of the monks says, I want to talk to you about my meditation. I said, not now. When the pipes were bust and I knew how to fix them. Sorry, I'll do it this afternoon, but not this morning. I had one morning a week when I wasn't the abbot of the monastery where I'm the abbot the rest of the week. (laughs) And it was an amazing experience. When I took no responsibility for the place where I stayed, I was supposed to run, the place did start to look beautiful it was a very peaceful place. I hadn't seen that before. When you take responsibility for it, it's never as beautiful and as peaceful. Honestly, all those of you who have cooked food, if you cook the food yourself, it never tastes as delicious as if someone cooks it for you. It's weird. One of the things is because you're just enjoying it. When you you do the cooking, or the building, or the sweeping, it's never as clean as when somebody else does it. And this is one of the reasons why I realise the benefits of being irresponsible for one morning a week. That's not much, just one morning a week, crikey. And you're pretty... Your home, your garden, your little apartment, if you're visiting somebody else's apartment, you say, oh, this is a very beautiful place. If it's your own, you see all the faults. That's one of the reasons why it's nice to take time off. You sit down, you meditate, you're not meditating, you're just relaxing, taking time out. it's like you're not your body, you're visiting your body for a few hours, but you don't own it. It's much more peaceful then. But anyway, little by little you learn what letting go is, you try this and try that, you find out what works, And how fantastic that sort of concept can be. I stayed with my murky dalimeter for a while, but it didn't get brighter. I thought I was scared or too excited, but maybe didn't. I thought I said this, this before. I think this, isn't. but it made it be deeper down. I don't think I deserve a deeper meditation because I have not been keeping my precepts, or I, do I really deserve it? Am I good enough? Of course, you are good enough. I mentioned when I talked about nimitus in Malaysia many years ago to the the BGF. I was giving a retreat there and my attendant asked to have a special uh, interview with me after that talk. And I asked him why. He was really concerned. And he said, I'm your attendant but I get nimitus but they're always dirty and murky and stained, just like a white cloth which has been dragged through the mud. And you just told me that it's often because of of bad precepts. And I confess, Ajahn Brahm, I don't think I deserve to be your attendant. I've broken my precepts too many times over the last week. Just like your question. And I told him. Look, that's true, your precepts does affect, you know, your meditation. But I'm kind of an an expert on this. I'll tell you about the loophole. (laughs) I don't know if I should, but I always do. Because even if you have broken precepts, you see the limiter which is murky or dull or like a dirty rag you can still get beautiful limiters and deep meditation out of that. This is how you do it. You see the piece of paper, like dirty things on it or whatever, it's not pure white. But in here, in the whole picture of this piece of paper with writing on it, you can look at part of it, just this bit over here, which is clean, it's got nothing on it. I told my attendant, Please look at the most beautiful part of that nimitta, the cleanest, purest part, the rest may be really dirty. There's always a part of it which is the purest. Don't go looking for the two bad bricks. Look for the beautiful bricks in the wall, in your nimitta. When you do that, you see the beautiful part, it's like you do zoom in on it. It's amazing how many people are paying attention. It must be you've been breaking your precepts. (laughs) You're really interested in this. (laughs) Okay, so you're not totally pure. So who is? You're doing your best. You're kind. You know, you're trying the best. But anyway, you look at the most beautiful part of the nimitta. You zoom in on it. And you find that pure part, the clean part, expands and fills your mind. And Then you look for the most beautiful part of that. That expands and fills the mind. And the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part of the most beautiful part. part. And soon you have this incredible nimittas. You deserve it, don't deserve it, don't worry about that. See what the beautiful nimittas are. They will encourage your virtue to be better because you have so much more happiness, so much more joy and peace in your heart. After these nimbutas you get what we call the afterglow. When you come out of meditation, you're really happy. And they say that nothing can upset you. This is the two qualities in Nalakapana Sutta, Arati and Tandi disappear. Those mean arati means discontent. And tani means weariness. Do you experience weariness sometimes on this retreat? Ajahn Brahm is telling the same old stories again and again and again. Oh, I want to go to bed. <laughs> or you, know, you get bored, the meditation's not working as you should expect it. And you get... Ugh. Once the meditation does work and you have some limiters coming up and the hindrances start to disappear, it's not just the hindrances go, but also this discontent and weariness goes. You're energized. And that's why sometimes, you know, when people get nimittas and I want to test them, you know, I just tell them, look, I'm sorry, but Polish women can't get nimiters." And see your reaction. <laughs> and if you get, what? You can't say that, Ajahn brum If you react with discontent, I realize that wasn't a nimitta after all. If you just look, okay, fine enough, And then I think maybe that was. You can't be upset when you have the beautiful, powerful mind states of nimittas. So that's one of the other things which disappears. So what happens if you have a nimitta and it's murky and dull and whatever, doesn't matter, find the most beautiful part of it. You do deserve it. Of course, everybody deserves happiness. Don't keep punishing yourself and thinking about the two bad bricks in the wall. Did I talk about the 70% rule? I did in one of the interviews. This is like an example of the two bad bricks, but takes it deeper and more interesting, I think anyway. When I was a school teacher, I had to set exams in maths. And so when I set exams, I didn't know how to set an exam. So I asked someone else for some uh, advice and they say, try and aim it so the, the average score is about 70%. Because if you make, the av- make it too hard, so the average score is 40% or 30%, it's not the student's fault, it's just you set the questions too hard. But what will happen is your students will lose motivation. They'll come away thinking they can't do maths. Once I ask this question, I'm going to ask, are you you good at mathematics, mental arithmetic? Listen carefully. 26 sheep in a field, 10 die. How many survive? If if, if you've heard it before, be quiet. 26 sheep in a field, 10 die, how many survive? How many think 16? Put your hand up if you think 16, be honest. You're all wrong. Thank you for saying that, Nicholas, because you've heard it so many times. 26 sheep in a field, 10 die, how many survive? How many think ten? <laughs> many of you have heard this before. The answer is ten. That's the correct answer. Twenty sick sheep <laughs> in the <a> field. <laughs> Everybody here is twenty-six. I said twenty-six. <laughs> so You got something? Yeah? No. Okay. (laughs) So anyhow, you make mass interesting and people think they can do it. But anyway, if you make it too hard, they will think they can't do it. If you make it too easy, so everyone gets 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10 or something, it's a useless exam. And somebody, they told me this and it was just so important. Where people make mistakes, that's nothing to do with the student, but everything to do with the teacher. That's where I get feedback on what they haven't learned properly, what I assume they understood, but they hadn't. So that three out of ten where they make mistakes, if it's 70%, I look at that, and that's my next lesson, so that's what I teach. And I thought, it's a lovely... Reflection about life. If you're always 100%, you may think it's very comfortable, but you never learn anything. The same, if you've got a partner in life who's 100%, separate, divorce him. (laughs) It's a pain in the butt. 70% is just nice pretty good, you have a wonderful time together, but the 30% where you irritate one another, that's the place where you learn and grow. If you didn't, if you were so perfect, it wouldn't really be much of a purpose for a relationship. It's there for you to grow and understand, and become a better woman, a better man. It's that 30% where there's mistakes, that's where you learn. I thought it's a wonderful thing about life. All the monks in Bodhinyana Monastery, so they're not perfect. And where they fail, that's where they learn and grow, become better monks. If you think I'm a good teacher, you ask Angie, Monksfield, she used to be known, now Jim Ling Chu, because when she first came here years ago, she was very inspired by my teachings. So she came and stayed in Boliniana Monastery for a little while, asked her to go into the library, and she got some of the earliest talks that I gave, they were almost 40 years ago. And she came up and said, I just listened to this talk you gave about 40 years ago. It's terrible! <laughs> and she said that with a big smile on her face. And I said, of course. That's why I started learning how to give Dhamma talks. You weren't born with the gift of giving Dhamma talks. You learn. You grow. Little by little, the 70%, the 30% where you're weak, you learn from, grow and become a better form. So when she told me that, I just burst out laughing, say thank you. Said, Don't need to be ashamed because you know that uh, you get much better talks these days. Same old jokes but better talks. <laughs> <laughs> so, you you all grow and you deserve to grow. While watching the breath, it becomes, it becomes holding it, then the pain, the pain arise, after that I stop the meditation. Now the pain stay. How to reset it? Please, when you are meditating, you never hold the breath. When whatever's in front of the mind right now, is the most important object. That's what you watch, you don't choose what to watch. Now is the most important time. The thing in front of you is the most important thing in the whole world. And you look upon it with this wonderful sense of care. Open the door of your heart to whatever is in front of you right now. Even if it's unpleasant, it's an anger-eating monster that's come to visit you. You give it anger, get out of here, don't hurt so much. It gets worse. Welcome it, care for it. And you'll be surprised how it fades away. So you never watch the breath and hold it. If the breath wants to go, let it go. One of the important stories, over in Thailand, uh, during the hot weather, the villagers would always take the water buffalo out to graze in the fields. It was a nice, easy job. And one of the villagers was taking this water buffalo past past uh, Bung Wai, uh, that's what Banana Chap Monastery, and the water buffalo got spooked. At that time, I never knew why, but you know, this was like a jungle, like a, a rainforest, and lots of water buffalos will get eaten by tigers. What color is a tiger? This color. So when those water buffalo see monks in a monastery, they get scared, their eyesight is not that good. And so when they get scared, their head goes up. And if you see the water buffalo with its head gone up, you know, you become scared, you get behind a tree or something because they might charge. And water buffaloes charge me a couple of times. It's not that they hate you, it's just because they can't see properly, and they think maybe it's a tiger. So, that's what happened. This water buffalo must have seen something which spooked it in the forest and started running off. And the owner of the water buffalo just had a small string around the, the water buffalo's neck and tried to stop the water buffalo. It's a very stupid thing to do. What's, what's stronger a man or a water buffalo? Of course. So the string wound around the man's finger and pulled the top of his finger off. So he came into monastery with half a finger and lots of blood everywhere. He wasn't too much in pain because I think just the shock had just uh, had secreted what is it, adrenaline, or what? Well, anyway, just uh, takes away the pain for a while. So we took him into the hospital and got him patched up. He just got two-thirds of a finger these days. But, you now we always mentioned that as a simile. Which is stronger, you or your mind? So if your mind wants to run off, off you go. Don't try and stop it. And water buffalo they only go maybe a couple of hundred meters down the road and then they stop. You can just walk after it and the water buffalo will let you take it again. That's just like the mind. You try and control it and stop it without understanding it, you get a lot of injuries, emotional injuries. You let it go, it wants to go off, okay, off you go. And then you can walk after it. And that was, almost finished. That was like the story, there was a story in Perth, but then the Buddhist fellowship sponsored a lady to go over to UK to do a a psychology degree, to become a counsellor. She came and stayed here for a while and I told her this story about um, this this mother in Perth, her kid, about five or six years of age, had a tantrum they were just home together, and the son said, Mummy, I do not love you anymore. I'm leaving home. Five or six years of age, kid. What would you do? You may think this, but this actual mother actually did it. She said, Okay, if you want to leave home, I'll help you pack. And that's what the mother did. Helped her five or six year old pack. A little suitcase and all the important things in life like the Spider-Man costume, lucky underpants (laughs) and then the mother said, look, you know, you're going to get hungry soon, so what would you like to eat for lunch? And so the mother made the kids favourite sandwiches, put it in a brown paper bag and then said goodbye to her six year old at the door. Bye bye, son. Have a wonderful life. Don't forget to write. And off the kid went, the first time in its life, left home. And the mother just let it. What do you think happened to the kid? He went to the garden gate, opened it, turned left. He'd only gone about 100 meters down the road and felt terribly homesick. Turned around, walked back, and the mother was still waiting for him. Welcome home, darling. (laughs) She was so kind to the kid. (laughs) Who would want to leave a mother like that? When I was saying that story, the lady from the uh, Buddhist fellowship, she was being so disrespectful to me. She was rolling on the floor in front of me, up in the dana sala in uh, in Bodhinyana. That's where we have our lunch. Laughing her head off. I said, why, why are you acting like that? And then she said, none of you do that. Roll over on the floor and laugh. She did. And she said, you wouldn't believe it, but almost exactly the same thing happened to me. You know, one of the uh, the apartment blocks in Singapore had a similar argument with my mum. You know, she was really upset at me and so I said, mum, I don't love you any longer, I'm gonna leave home. And mother helped me pack. But she never gave me a sandwich. She gave me a $20 note, by your own lunch. (laughs) And she went in the elevator and pressed the ground floor button. By the time she got to the ground floor, that's when she was terribly, terribly homesick. So, pressed the button where her apartment was and the mother hadn't moved. Welcome home, darling. I kind of like that story. What it means is your mind, if it wants to go off, off you go. Pack its bags, give it a sandwich or a twenty dollar note, metaphorically. You're such a kind mother, a kind guardian, that your mind will come straight back to you pretty quickly. When do likes and dislikes disappear in the process of meditation? That is at which stage of meditation? They can, the coarser part of them, can disappear just when you get into the delightful breath. (laughs) The delightful breath is the same as when the Buddha said, watch the breath with Piti Sukha coming up. The breath becomes wonderful. And what happens is the experience of a delightful breath is so gorgeous You don't want any more delights and likes and dislikes or what you want and what you don't want. You're satisfied. This is beautiful. When you get some of those even delightful breaths, it's like you can't take your eyes off it, your mental eyes. You're really happy just being there. This is beautiful, this is lovely. That's actually when the likes and dislikes start to disappear as you go deeper and deeper into the meditation, it does feel so safe. Powerful, but safe. You don't need to have any wants or aversion. You're just having too beautiful a time. So, if one reaches that stage, how does it translate into our daily life? How it translates into daily life, you have this beautiful resource, which a lot of people don't have. It can be difficult for you, because once you have the, um, the memory of those beautiful experiences in meditation, many people want them again, and so wanting means it's harder to reach, but eventually you get the message, just be content, relax to the max, what's in front of you is the most important, and eventually, if you're kind to it, just like the little kid. You're kind. If that's what you want to do, I'll pack your bags and give you a favorite sandwich. And your kid will always come back to you. Usually much quicker than you think. And that means that your mind just stays with you. The longer it stays with you, the more this joy, this pity sukha comes up, the delightful breath, and it gets much better than that. So in your daily life, you'll always find time to meditate. In your daily life, when you go back to Singapore, do you eat? Every day? Why? Because you enjoy it. You see the benefits but also you enjoy it. That's what it becomes like with meditation. If you don't meditate, it's like you feel spiritually hungry. Spiritually, you're starving. And so you meditate for the same reason you eat. You eat for physical health. You meditate for emotional, mental health. It becomes natural. (laughs) Do we also have no likes and dislikes in our daily living? You You said likes and dislikes, but of course you have likes and dislikes, but they become much more without... Craving. You know, I work very hard to try and teach you. I like to make sure that I teach you as appropriate as possible and give you the right brainwashing and just not teach too long. I just like doing that. But you do that because not any self involved, but out of loving kindness for everybody. Anyway. I don't know if I answered it correctly in the end never mind Dear Ajahn Brahm, you once said that Ajahn Chah used to look through you when he was speaking to you is this to evaluate your karma or work work out what you are thinking yeah Ajahn Chah was amazing like that because sometimes when I first got confidence and faith in Ajahn Chah it was when I first went to see him you know we were doing some work, making his baskets, you know, for his mother's funeral. And he came up to me and said, oh, that's a lovely basket. And I looked at it, and he said, who's he trying to fool? it wasn't a lovely basket. And I said, look, if you're trying to flatter me, flatter me to get me to stay here, no way. I kind of was losing my faith in him. But then as I was making another basket, one of the other... Uh, visitors to the monastery was asking these questions of Ajahn Chah. And somebody was translating them for Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was answering them in Thai and then trans- it was translated back. And when Ajahn Chah's answer was translated back, I was like you know, overhearing that that's nothing to do with the question that monk had asked or that visitor had asked but it was very much what I was thinking. Ajahn Chah was answering the questions I was thinking, not the questions he was being asked. So just to test out, I thought of another Dhamma question. Just thought of it, never spoke it. And then this other uh, visiting monk, he asked a second question, translated, when Ajahn Chah's answer was translated back, it was a lovely answer to my question. So I did a third, fourth, fifth or sixth question. And all the time, whatever I thought, Ajahn Chah was answering my questions. So afterwards, I asked this monk, I said, what do you think of Ajahn Chah's answers? It was crazy, it was mad. He wasn't answering my questions at all. I said, yeah, he was answering my ones. I was the only one who knew that because I was just thinking my questions. That gave me a lot of confidence and faith, this monk was actually reading my mind. And of course later on, it became really sort of clear and obvious that, you know, why question, he said there's nothing. You know, he, he, you could feel him reading your mind beforehand. Weird experience, but it was like he knew he was inside my mind searching around and for, for once, I didn't mind that at all. I just come out of a really nice meditation. My mind was actually quite pure. For once, I was proud of it. For once. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> that's why he just tried to enlighten me. Wangsa, why? Why? And I said, I don't know. And He laughed. Whenever you were stupid, Ajahn Chah never scolded you, he thought it was one of the funniest things in the world. So all the stupid disciples he had from the West, we caused him so much happiness. (laughs) (laughs) So much laughter. But this one, after he laughed, that's when he said to me, Ajahn Brahm, I'll tell you the answer. That was amazing. I was really excited had a really nice peaceful mind after a really deep meditation, and he said, I'll tell you the answer to the question why. And I was really listening and grateful. And he said, the answer to the question why is there's nothing. There's nothing. And that's when he said, do you understand? And I said, you know, just being a proud young Englishman, said, yes. And he looked at me and said, no you don't. <laughs> And that was a interesting, kind of embarrassing, but beautiful times of my life with that Chah. The answer to the question why? There's nothing. Do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> you think you do. That's a beautiful little uh, exchange. Anyway. Next question, what are the significance of the skeletal pictures, one sitting, one lying in a cave in your office? Oh, the one, one lying in a cave, I know there's one sitting in a cave there and that was about to be thrown away and I said, no, 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 I want that one because that monk, he was found in a cave in the north of Thailand and he was There's bits of robe, if you can look carefully, there's bits of robe still sort of next to his body. He'd been like that for so many years. Because all the monks who would go for the range retreat would always have to check in with the local head monks. They asked the local head monks when the villagers found that in a cave, they asked (laughs) them, who is this? Okay, there's been no one in that cave for, for decades. So, as a monk for such a long time before, hundreds of years or something, he got in that cave, entered a meditation, and just passed away. And that's what's left. Animals hadn't disturbed it, it was just um, sitting in a perfect meditation posture. It never sort of disintegrated or fell over or anything. That kind of inspired me. So I asked for that photo and I got it on the shrine. That's the significance of that. Because there was a monk who just meditated until passed away and still carried on meditating. I don't know, I found that inspiring. I don't know about you. The one lying down. I forget what that one is. Dear Ajahn, I often wonder what a wonderful teacher Ajahn Chah must have been to be able to teach and have so many able Westerners to, be, to become many wonderful and complete competent teachers. His influence spread so widely all over the world. I understand he spoke uh, no English, yet he could communicate Buddha's teachings to so many who did not know Thai. How How come he could teach so many Westerners when they didn't understand Thai language? And there was once was this, uh, this Privy Councillor of Thailand, and uh, his daughter-in-law visited today an old Perth girl and Dr. Sanat. And so, Dr. Sanat asked Ajahn Chah years and years and years ago, how come you've got so many Western disciples? How do you teach them? And Ajahn Chah replied, teaching Westerners is easy. They're like water buffalo. You pull them this way, push them that way until they, until they can do it. I train them like training water buffalo we were like water buffalo. (laughs) And to a tie, that was so funny, Dr. Sinod burst out laughing. Because (laughs) Ajahn Chah can do that, it's quite disrespectful to call Westerners water buffalo. But He said that's what it's like, put them this way, push them, I train them just like we train water buffalo in villages and it works. How can people train water buffalo? They can't speak water buffalo language. That's how it works. So that's how Ajahn Chah taught me. Pull me this way, push me that way. Until you can do it. <laughs> Eventually you learn some Thai and the local Isan language and then that's how you learn. Anyway, this afternoon you said Nibbāna is like an extinguished flame of a candle. Ajahn Bhamali once said Nibbāna is the highest state of happiness. If Nibbāna is like an extinguished flame, how can it be the highest state of happiness? Or is the state something can't be described using ordinary human experience? Thank you Ajahn. There was a monk called Udayin in the time of the Buddha, I asked almost the same question to Sariputta and Sariputta gave a beautiful answer. He said, it's just like when you are sick. When you are sick, are you happy? Of course not. When you overcome that sickness, when that sickness disappears, is there happiness? And then he went from stage to stage, when you are a non, when you are a a, a stream winner, only at most six lifetimes left here. Is there happiness? Why? Because something's disappeared which was suffering. A once returner, a non-returner, fully enlightened, and when you actually you've finished with enlightenment, parinibbana, when you die, pass away, the five candors disappear is the ending of a lot of suffering. Is that happiness? So so that's how you should understand the Buddha's teaching. Nothing left. You don't experience the happiness as a Vedana. Vedana has all ceased. Oh what bliss. It's a different way of looking that's one of the reasons why that one of the books which I wrote, Ajahn Brahmari transcribed, it's called The Art of Disappearing. It's a wonderful way of describing meditation. Not becoming a bigger monk or just a more well-known, but disappearing. And that's what happens in meditation. You start vanishing. The body starts vanishing. That's why you go into deep meditations. And in the meditation, one meditation after another, different things vanish. In the first jhana, all of the five senses vanish and can't reach you. In the second jhana, your will vanishes. In the third van- uh, jhana, this particular happiness. You know, called pity vanishes. And then the fourth jhana, the sukha vanishes. Just equanimity or contentment, deep contentment. The next thing which happens is the immaterial states, the arupas, that's where your mind starts to turn off, starts to disappear. The objects start to disappear. And with it, the mind, that which knows, slowly vanishes. And the deeper you go, the more peaceful it is. You get a much more refined idea of what happiness is. That is deep. And it's now time for me to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> it's 9:20. But thank you, everybody, for uh, being restrained with answer, asking your questions, because that's all the questions tonight. Finish them. Wow. Even there were so, some very profound questions, like, "What is your favorite food?" And then about (laughs) Nibbana, so so thank you everybody. It's nice questions there's some are profound and some are just quite ordinary but I like all of them because if you just do profound questions, people get bored. So now you all know what my favourite food is, do you? Okay pure food with a pure heart okay <laughs> sadu sadu sadu